Hello and welcome to another episode of All for Nature. I'm your host, Michelle Bonebreak, and I'm an outdoor educator here at Shaw Nature Reserve. Okay, listeners, welcome back and Happy New Year. We've made it through most of the winter and signs of spring are cropping up everywhere we look. And spring, for many of us, means planting season. Now, regular listeners have heard us talk a lot about the efforts we are making at the Nature Reserve to promote native biodiversity, and we'll review what that means later. But some of us may be wondering what we can do at home in our own gardens and landscapes to contribute to those efforts. Fortunately, we have a top-notch horticulture team at the Nature Reserve, and when they're not growing and caring for the plants here at the Nature Reserve, they're working hard to develop and facilitate learning opportunities, such as the Native Plant School series, to help you, our listeners, learn more about how to support our native ecosystems on your own property. The Native Plant School is so popular, it often fills to capacity. So, when our series expert that you're about to meet suggested we adapted one of the classes she taught into a three-part podcast series about ecological gardening, I jumped at the chance. Oh, and stick around after the interview because I'll give you a quick update on upcoming events at the Nature Reserve. But right now, without further delay, thank you for joining us as we present to you Ecological Gardening Part 1, Wildscaping. We are so fortunate to have Vivian Baus with us today to help us understand what that means. Vivian is a member of our horticulture team here at the Nature Reserve, and she has graciously offered to join me here and take a dive into the subject with us. Vivian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little about your background and give us an idea of how you came to be here with us at the Nature Reserve. Sure thing. So I have a bachelor's degree in conservation biology and a background in ecological restoration. I've worked in native landscaping, restoration, and public education, where I was a seasonal naturalist at a state park. I joined the restoration crew at Shaw in 2021, which was great. We mostly spent our days killing invasive plants and collecting seed all across the reserve. Um, The following summer, I made the switch to horticulture. At the time, most of my free time was dedicated to growing native plants in my own backyard nursery, as well as designing and installing native gardens for friends and family. So it all really fell into place. Our horticulture team manages the Whitmire Wildflower Garden here at Shaw, which is the educational display garden that showcases our region's native plants and natural landscapes. In addition to managing the garden, we design new plantings and we grow our own plants for these designs from seed that we collected. We also get to teach classes each month as part of our native plant school, which is great for public outreach. As a native plant horticulturist with firsthand experience restoring natural areas, I've really enjoyed mixing my restoration and horticulture experiences to become an advocate for native gardening. My goal is to spark interest and inspire others to take part in the conservation movement. Collective conservation efforts have proven to be successful, and what better way to get involved than with gardening? So true. So, all right, let's start with the basics. What is ecological gardening, or as I've heard it called before, wildscaping? So wildscaping, or another word for it is naturescaping, these are just fun names to describe the concept of ecological gardening, which is just combining landscaping with the natural or wild world. Ecological gardening in itself is a movement that's growing in popularity for good reason. This restorative land practice emphasizes the use of a diverse range of native plants to create habitat connections that provide the resources necessary to support a diversity of wildlife. 
So ultimately, the goal with ecological gardening is to create aesthetically pleasing landscapes that support wildlife year-round. And through knowledge of local flora and fauna interactions and the use of intentional eco-landscaping techniques, a well-designed native garden creates an oasis for wildlife filled with diverse, carefully selected plants that maintain a desirable appearance. Ecological gardening is creating landscapes that work in harmony with nature rather than against it. And it gives us the ability to make a difference in our yards, as well as an outlet for sharing beauty and knowledge with our neighbors to help increase habitat connectivity. And research has shown that these collective conservation efforts really add up and make a difference. Mm. So we're changing our mindset from how we traditionally use our land with just planting pretty flowers in our yard simply for aesthetics without considering these, how these plants play a role in the local ecosystem to a new mindset of strategically creating an actual habitat that supports life. So you're planting for a conservation purpose. Oh, nice. So I guess one might think of ecological gardening or wildscaping or naturescaping as planting an intentional garden that uses native plants to mimic the natural world around us in an effort not only to look beautiful, which is important, of course, uh, but to support our native wildlife neighbors. So I'm thinking of this idea, and I think I've seen this idea described as a hybrid of horticulture and ecology. Does that sound right? Break it down for us. So all species are interconnected, and ecology is in part the study of that interconnectedness. It sort of makes sense that horticulture, which is the cultivation of plants, would intersect with ecology, which we can think of as how those plants fit into and interact with other residents of an ecosystem within the context of the larger area they inhabit. So these interactions are key, and by understanding complex relationships in nature, Ecological gardeners can recreate natural communities that are designed and carefully maintained to avoid negative comments from the neighbors. Mm -hmm. So really, it all begins with native plants. Think of an ecosystem's food web. Plants make up that base layer. More specifically, native plants are the foundation to which all other species rely on to create those complex working relationships that make up a stable and productive ecosystem. So this kind of gardening, ecological gardening, it sounds like a really amazing alternative to traditional gardening for so many reasons, like a leveling up of purpose or moving beyond uh, just planting what looks pretty. It is a really great alternative. And how great is it that we have the ability to transform degraded, low ecological value land into a habitat that's rich in diversity and resiliency, which is necessary for our survival? There are so many benefits to ecological gardening for both humans and wildlife. It offers us a sense of accomplishment, a sense of purpose, and a deep connection to both nature and your community. Native plants also manage stormwater. They improve the health of your soil, and they save you money because you no longer need to fertilize or constantly reapply mulch. Many people go native for the lower maintenance requirements. I mean, it's so much less effort when you aren't applying mulch regularly or when there's no need to water your garden because natives are built for our climate. Hmm. Oh, and forget the rigorous cleanup schedules every season. I'll discuss that further in part three of this series when we discuss maintenance and cleanup. Okay, well, wow, you've got me convinced. So let's dive a little deeper. And we've already talked a little bit about ecology and what ecological gardening means. Now, in previous episodes, we've talked about ecosystems and the idea of biodiversity, so regular listeners may be familiar with those terms, but here's a quick review. Think of an ecosystem as all the living things, such as animals and plants, and all the non-living things, such as sun, shade, or water, 
in a specific area, like for example, a prairie or a forest ecosystem. And the way those living and non-living components of the ecosystem are interacting with or impacting one another, that's that interconnectedness that we keep talking about. As for biodiversity, we might think of that as a measure of how many different kinds of living organisms are in that area having those interactions. The more different kinds of living things you have in a space, the more biodiverse that space is, and generally speaking, the healthier, more stable, and more resilient that ecosystem is as a whole. And the reason I want to take time to review these terms is because I think our listeners will find these concepts threaded throughout our discussions for the entirety of this series, and we'll be relying on these definitions to dig deeper into what that means for our gardens. So I think it's important to know what we mean when we use those words. So now that we have those definitions out of the way and we have a common understanding of those terms, please help remind us of our mission. You told us that native plants form a sort of base layer that all other species rely on when forming a diverse, stable ecosystem. What are some other reasons why it's so critical for us to consider using native plants in our home gardens and landscapes? So, as a clear result of human activity, extinction is occurring at a rate that is many times higher than the natural rate due to human influence. Mm. This is at least a thousand times higher than natural extinction. Wow. Habitat loss and degradation are the primary factors for this alarming mass extinction. And so as we look to protect our declining resources and those way too small portions of nature that remain, it's become clear that conservation efforts need to focus on the large tracts of land in our own communities and backyards. By purposely integrating our land into the local natural world, we can connect our space with neighbors and natural areas, which will increase the habitat connectivity and space needed for local wildlife to thrive. We need to rebuild habitat by connecting our land to create larger chunks that support the resource needs of local wildlife. These resource requirements include food, water, and shelter. Spatial limitations due to habitat connectivity also go into play for competition and reproduction. So it's all about viewing your yard as more than just an isolated patch of land, but rather a connected habitat to your neighbors and the surrounding natural areas. Oh, there's that interconnectedness again. So help us understand this. Why should we consider using native plants over non-native plants? Non-native plants are very popular. We see them in garden centers, the big box stores, home gardens all the time. Can those non-native plants provide any of those resource requirements you mentioned? So considering the ecological importance of native plants in regards to supporting wildlife and humans, uh, you might think that we gardeners would value plants for all that they do. Instead, we usually value them for what they look like. And when we design our home landscapes, too many of us choose non-native exotic plants for their beauty without really considering their ability to support life in our yards. Traditionally, we've chosen to plant these exotic plants. Uh, Picture a typical suburban neighborhood where every yard is a slate of lawn with sparsely planted non-native plants. This is what I like to refer to it as an ecological wasteland because ecologically speaking, that yard is useless. It's vital to understand that not all plants are considered equal. Non-native plants that are planted somewhere they do not occur naturally means that it did not co-evolve alongside that place's native wildlife. The plant is totally foreign to the insects that live there and therefore not recognized or utilized as a food source. It's basically just ignored. Interesting. Which was a big reason that we brought over non-native plants so they wouldn't get insect damage. Mm -hmm. However, now is the time to recognize the problem with removing native vegetation and replacing it with exotic species. 
by switching to ecological gardening practices, we're recognizing how rewarding it is to see evidence that insects are using our plants. The more that we incorporate native plants and different species of native plants, the more we support the insects that pollinate our food and that serve as food for other wildlife. Here's some fun facts for you. Over 95% of birds require insects and over 70% of songbirds eat mostly insects. Wow. So what I'm hearing is that as humans, one of the perceived benefits of non-native plants is that our native insects don't recognize them as food at all. So they stay pristine and undamaged. And that's why non-native or exotic plants have been used for really hundreds of years in the United States at this point. But in reality, it sounds like what seems like damage to us is food for our native insects. And that makes me think that these undamaged plants, while aesthetically pleasing to our human eyes, aren't really a benefit to us or to the ecosystem as a whole over time. Maybe you can explain a little more about the ecological impacts of native plants as opposed to non-native plants. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so an excellent example of native versus non-native plants in terms of ecological benefit comes from a study done by Doug Tallamy, who's mm-hmm. an expert entomologist an insect researcher, Mm -hmm. and he's an expert ecologist. My own interest in native plants was first inspired by his work, and so I highly recommend to anyone interested in learning more about ecology and native plants to read his books or listen to his interviews. So anyways, Doug Tallamy did a research study on native white oak trees versus non-native Bradford pears, which is a tree commonly planted in residential areas. So the results of this study found 410 caterpillars on the native white oak, 19 different species, and only one little inchworm on the non-native Bradford pear. Wow. These caterpillars are super important to birds, such as chickadees. In the spring, those chickadees are hatching babies, and those babies need caterpillars. Doug Tallamy also did a study observing nests of chickadees to estimate how many caterpillars it takes to raise a brood of chicks. His research found it takes a total of 350 to 570 caterpillars every day, depending on how many chicks they have. So that adds up to 6,000 to 9,000 caterpillars required to make one clutch of chickadees. And chickadees are tiny little birds. Imagine how many it would take to raise a clutch of larger birds like woodpeckers. That's wild. A yard that is dominated by non-native ornamental plants does not produce nearly the quantity and diversity of insects needed for birds to reproduce. And so some might argue that we should just let those birds breed in nature, which worked in the past, but now there's simply not enough nature left. That's a really great example. And just as an aside for our listeners, I think everyone should read Doug Tallamy's work. Yes, he's an entomologist, but he's also very, very readable. And it's really fascinating. Um, I want to recap that statistic you mentioned for our listeners, just so we can emphasize it. 410 caterpillars from 19 different species on one single native white oak tree versus one inchworm on the Bradford pear. And I bet most of our listeners are pretty familiar with the Bradford pear, but if not, the Bradford pear is a non-native, I think probably considered invasive at this point, species of tree introduced as an ornamental landscape tree in the 1960s. And it's become a real problem for our ecosystems. Now compare that literal dead zone of the Bradford pear with its one caterpillar to the 410 caterpillars on the native white oak. And I think that in itself emphasizes how important the oak is to these insects living on it, as well as everything dependent on those insects like those chickadees. Now, that white oak in our example is just one example of a native plant that hosts many different wildlife species, right? 
So some plants host many different species of insects. These are called keystone species because they're so crucial to the ecosystems where they live. They support many other plants and animals, including insects, by providing food and shelter at some point in these other species' lives. Uh, it's called a keystone species because the term keystone is an architectural reference to a wedge-shaped stone at the top of an archway. If the keystone's removed, the arch could collapse. So similarly, keystone plants play such an important role in their ecosystem that if you remove just that species, so many other species will be impacted that the entire system will be totally altered or completely collapse. Keystone plants can support up to 90% of caterpillar species and up to 60% of native bees. That's amazing. And so going back to this example of that white oak, which is a keystone species, some of those caterpillars survive the marauding chickadees and other predators. And this is something that I wish we had time to go into now because they have some really cool ways of doing that, listeners. But sorry, no time for that today. Uh, but those caterpillars that survive, they grow up, they become butterflies or moths, and along with our native bees and wasps and other pollinators, continue to provide us and all the other wildlife with food. So it seems fair to say if you like seeing birds and butterflies around, it's really critical to support those birds and butterflies by planting the plants they need for their survival. Whether they are caterpillars munching on leaves or adult butterflies nectaring on flowers or even those baby chickadees eating the insects that are using those native plants. So it's clear we have some native plants, those keystone species, that support a lot of different insect species. But what if I'm one of those caterpillars on the oak we mentioned and let's say this oak I'm on is too crowded with 409 other caterpillars. Am I able to just hop over to a different plant? Because the neighbors on the next leaf are partying all night and I'm thinking that dogwood next door is looking pretty tasty. So it depends. I mentioned earlier that our native insects evolved alongside the plants in these specific regions over millions of years. Therefore, they rely on these certain species of plants to survive. The insects have developed the ability to overcome plant defenses to utilize the plant as a food source. So these specific plants are then considered the insect's host plant. These host plants are necessary for one or more parts of that insect's life cycle, often in the caterpillar stage as the only source of food. Some insects are extremely picky and can only utilize a single species of plant. So it just goes to say that loss of that plant equals loss of the insect that depends on it. So this concept of specialization can help explain the need for such diversity of native plants to support and maintain stable ecosystems. Plant choice is crucial, and being intentional about which native plants you include in your yard will make all the difference in what species are able to utilize your land as habitat. Interesting. So some species can only eat one type of plant, or maybe they can only lay their eggs on one type of plant because their caterpillars can only eat one type of plant. Um... Give us some examples. Okay, so over 90% of plant-eating insects are specialists. Wow. That is a huge number. Yeah. Uh, one good example, one of my favorites, because we have it in the Whitmire Wildflower Garden, is the Dutchman's pipevine and the pipevine swallowtail. This is an absolutely gorgeous large butterfly. If you have a pipevine planted in your yard on a trellis, along with sources of nectar from a variety of native flowers nearby, there is a really good chance that pipevine will be absolutely covered in caterpillars which will make the songbirds in your yard very happy. <laughs> Another great example are the fertility butterflies that will only lay their eggs where their caterpillar larvae can feed on violets. Ah. I like to use this example because violets are considered a weedy plant, but they support these fertility butterflies wow. and other native insects. 
These butterflies are an example of a butterfly that is a specialist in its larval or caterpillar stage. It can only eat those violets. But as an adult, it becomes more of a generalist and a good pollinator. It will visit native and non-native plants in search of nectar, which I'll talk about generalists a little bit later on. Uh, another species of interest is the monarch butterfly. Mm -hmm. Monarch butterflies have caught public attention for their specialization. They have evolved the ability to overcome toxicity of sap in milkweed. Now they require milkweed for their life cycle as a caterpillar food source. This not only limits competition with other insects, but it makes the caterpillar toxic to predators. Specialization has obvious benefits, however, due to habitat loss and the loss of keystone species, specialists have suffered huge losses. On the other side of the spectrum of specialization are generalists, meaning they aren't picky about their food or habitat. And these guys can often be found on non-native plants. So generalists, then, they're not picky about their plant choice, right? But that, does that mean we can plant non-natives for the generalists? I mean, you could if you weren't worried about providing resources for the species that actually need our help. Ah. Generalists are still great to see in our yards. However, they're not an indication that you're supporting pollinators. The goal is to protect local insect populations and to maximize your yard's ecological function, which requires a diversity of native plants. As I said before, your plant choice is crucial. Just to give some comparisons, an oak tree supports over 550 species of insects, while a ginkgo supports just five. Here's one comparison that may make you want to scream. Native goldenrods and asters both support about 115 species of insects. In comparison to everyone's favorites, those hostas, zinnias, marigolds, and cosmos, they're always a fan favorite and popular at your local Lowe's or other big box store. However, they support a whopping zero species of Really? Insects. Wow. A good approach is to prioritize keystone species that support the specialists, which will also support generalists. Okay. If you have a native garden, a fun thing you can do is kind of gauge the success of your yard by spending some time observing which insects visit and researching what species are less common, more specialized, or perhaps they're just super picky about habitat health. If you spot a ton of generalist insects, specifically like honeybees or super common butterflies and bees, yes, that's wonderful, but it's not necessarily providing the most benefit for local insect conservation. But ultimately, the goal is to have people just interested in pollinators, period. But if people do want to take it a step further, they could research their local specialist insects and then just work to add their specific native host plants to their yard. All right. Well, thank you so much, Vivian. So as we begin to wrap things up for this first episode, I think a major takeaway for our listeners is that our insect populations are in rapid decline and our food supply is absolutely dependent on these insects, but not just our food supply. These insects also provide food to wildlife, like the chickadees we talked about, and help to stabilize the ecosystem as a whole. So if we work toward the goal of increasing the biodiversity of plants in our home landscapes, we'll be working toward increasing the biodiversity of insects using those plants. And in doing that, we increase the biodiversity of the overall ecosystem, which again, helps keep our ecosystems healthy, stable, and if something negative does happen within that ecosystem, it should be more resilient and better able to recover. And it sounds like it would be really helpful for our planet, for all of us to think about how we can add native species to our home landscapes, and particularly to consider adding what I think of as high value species, like those keystone species you mentioned, that can host a lot of different insect species. 
What else have we talked about today that you think it's really important to emphasize for our listeners? So if there's one thing I hope listeners take away, let it be that traditional landscaping with non-native plants really needs to be a thing of the past if we wish to protect our declining natural resources. We may not be able to undo all the damage we've done, but through collective conservation efforts, we can make noticeable progress. There is hope, and each of us have the potential to make a difference. Spread the word of native gardening. Encourage an interest and deeper understanding of the natural world around us that we are so connected to. I love that. And you're right. I think it's really important to emphasize that we can, as individuals, make a positive difference to our wildlife neighbors, as well as our human neighbors, by working to understand more about these ecosystem connections and the benefits of ecological gardening. Okay, well, I think we've done a pretty comprehensive job laying the groundwork for parts two and three of our series on ecological gardening. How about a teaser for the next two episodes so our listeners know what to expect? So in part two, we're going to talk about how to get started designing and planning a native garden, including some tips for choosing which plants to grow and where to grow them. And then in part three, that'll be maintenance and cleanup techniques for supporting wildlife year round without angering your neighbors. And that is important. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Vivian. I look forward to parts two and three, and I'm sure our listeners do too. All right. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to bring you part two in just a couple of weeks. Meanwhile, here are some things to have on your radar that are happening at Shaw Nature Reserve. First, online registration is open for the Spring Into Nature 5K. This event takes place on Saturday, March 23rd from 9 to noon and is open to adults and children six years of age and older. All participants will receive a Missouri native plant and a sweet Spring Into Nature fanny pack. Again, registration is open online and we will link that in the show notes. And have we inspired you to start planning your ecological garden? If so, mark your calendars now for the Spring Wildflower Market at Shaw Nature Reserve. The Wildflower Market will take place on Friday and Saturday, May 3rd and 4th, but be aware, Friday night's all right for members only. Members of the Missouri Botanical Garden, that Friday date is just for you. Not a member yet? It's easy to sign up online. Or you can visit the market as a member of the public on the Saturday date. We'll bring you more details about the wildflower market, including how to take advantage of the online market presale in parts two and three of our series in the upcoming weeks. So be sure to join us again next time. And finally, spring and summer class registration is in full swing. Go online to browse our catalog and sign up. Check our show notes, our social media, and our website for more information. Thank you for being with us. We'll see you next time. And in the meantime, we will see you on the trail.